0: Hello, Wild Wanderers. We are now officially just over halfway through winter. So the sun is rising noticeably earlier and it's setting noticeably later. And since temperature lags behind day length a bit, the days are starting to get, well, at least a little bit warmer. Here at Dispatches HQ, we recently had some days that got up into the high 60s, right around the lower 70s. And with weather like that, we start to think about the coming spring in all its glory. Now, I've said before that I don't mind winter. I choose to make the most of it. But that doesn't mean that I don't look forward to the warmer days of spring. And even though winter doesn't officially end until March 20th, this is the time of year that we start to see signs that spring is just around the corner. Now, depending on where you live, these signs may still be a few weeks away. But for this episode, I want to look at the signs of spring. Nature signals that there is a light at the end of winter's tunnel and that warmer days are coming. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. It seems like spring sneaks up on us every year, doesn't it? Like one day it feels like winter doesn't want to let go and there's this epic struggle back and forth between winter and spring and then all of a sudden the leaves are on the trees and the wildflowers are in bloom. But I think that if we pay attention right now, I mean really pay attention, we'll notice all the subtle signs that winter is losing its grip and spring is moving in. Sometimes I think that it doesn't really begin to feel like spring until the leaves start to appear on the trees. But trees need a certain amount of sunlight in order to make enough food to meet their needs. And while most trees may start producing buds in the early spring, they don't really start to leaf out until much later in the spring, some as late as May. But there are many wildflowers that begin to grow and bloom well before that. Most of these wildflowers are called spring ephemerals, meaning they emerge quickly in the spring and then die back to their underground parts after a short period of growth and reproduction. One of the earliest blooming spring ephemeral wildflowers in the United States is snow trillium. Snow trillium is native to parts of the eastern and midwestern United States, primarily the Great Lakes states, the Ohio Valley, and the upper Mississippi River Valley, reaching as far north as central Minnesota. These tiny flowers don't get to be more than about three and a half or four inches tall, but they flower in the late winter or the early spring, often while there's still snow on the ground, hence the name. Snow Trillium goes through a one leaf vegetative phase, not flowering until it has gone through at least four or more years of this type of one leaf growth. Mature flowering Snow Trillium plants have three leaves. Now, interestingly, Snow Trillium depends on ants to disperse its seeds. Another spring ephemeral wildflower is actually called Harbinger of Spring. Harbinger of Spring begins blooming in late February and can be found in the rich hardwood forests of eastern North America, as far north as central New York State and southern Wisconsin, west to the western Ozarks, and south into central Alabama. This small flower is actually a member of the carrot family and grows from a bulb, At full height, it's less than six inches tall. It has a purplish stem and small white-petaled flowers with dark red anthers. Harbinger of spring is often found alongside another spring-blooming wildflower, spring beauty. Starting to notice any themes in the names here? Spring beauties have five-petaled white or pale pink flowers with pink pinstripes. Each flower branches off the shoot and only blooms for three days, and the stamen of each flower are only active for one day. Spring beauties usually start blooming in March. Now, one of my wife's favorite flowers are daffodils, and daffodils are also among the first flowers to start sprouting in the spring, as early as February in some areas. It may be March or April before they flower, but their green stalks and leaves will start poking up conspicuously through lingering snow or leaf litter. In some parts of the world, the appearance of these yellow and white flowers in the spring is associated with festivals. Now, like many plants that grow from bulbs, daffodils require exposure to cold to initiate dormancy before warmer spring weather stimulates their growth. By sprouting earlier in the spring before the trees have leafed out, daffodils and other spring ephemerals get more exposure to sunlight and enjoy a relative lack of competition for pollinators. Now the beauty of daffodils has made them a popular ornamental plant for hundreds of years. The ancient Greeks were familiar with the genus Narcissus, to which daffodils belong, for both their ornamental properties as well as their medicinal qualities. The leaves and bulbs of the plant are poisonous if eaten, but they produce a compound that's been used as a cancer treatment since ancient times, which explains why many cancer charities use the daffodil as their symbol. Hippocrates, the ancient Greek physician known as the father of medicine, recommended the use of Narcissus oil to treat uterine tumors. Even now, compounds derived from daffodils are used in some cancer treatments and treatments for Alzheimer's, and they're also being investigated for other medicinal uses. Now, where there are flowers, there are insects to pollinate them, or eat them in some cases. So when the wildflowers start to emerge, you should also start to see more insects, a sure sign that spring is on its way. Insects don't hibernate during the winter, they enter what's called diapause. Basically like reptiles and amphibians, their metabolism slows and their development is just put on pause. They find a comfortable place to spend the winter, sometimes grouping together in large numbers, and emerge when conditions are right. So what insects can you expect to see as winter starts to recede? Well, some solitary bees, which for the record is about 90% of bee species, will be the first to emerge when the weather warms. These bees overwinter in their adult form, either because they pupated in the fall and then remained in the nest for the winter, surviving on provisions left by their mother, or because like mammals that hibernate, they fattened up before the winter. One such bee is called the unequal cellophane bee, which is one of the earliest species to become active in the spring, usually beginning in early March. These bees nest underground, they rarely sting, and they're excellent pollinators, even though they don't store honey. Their name derives from the practice of lining their underground nest cells with a secretion that, when it dries, forms a smooth cellophane-like lining. This cell holds one egg suspended above a collection of pollen and nectar that the larva will feed on when it hatches hoverflies also known as flower flies are also active early in the spring they look and even fly like a bee or a wasp and like bees they're pollinators feeding on nectar and pollen but in spite of their looks hoverflies are harmless and they lack a stinger there's actually about 6000 different species of hoverflies In some species, the larvae feed on aphids, which makes them not only important pollinators, but valuable in controlling pests as well. The appearance of butterflies will depend on where you live. Generally speaking, butterflies need temperatures to be in at least the 60s or 70s before they can emerge. Some butterflies spend the winter in their chrysalis, but some, like the black and yellow morning cloak, overwinter in their adult form. Typical locations for spending the winter if you're a butterfly include tree cavities and on the ground underneath loose tree bark where they may even be covered by snow. Morning cloaks may emerge from diapause before the snow has completely melted, making it one of the first butterflies to be seen in the spring. Another butterfly that overwinters as an adult is the eastern comma, a medium-sized orange and black butterfly. Like the morning cloak, eastern commas emerge early in the spring, maybe even before all the snow has melted, and they lay their eggs on the first new growth of nettles and elm trees. Other insects that are early emergers are the invasive brown marmorated stink bug, an Asian lady beetle, along with a wide variety of flies. Even though some of these are invasive or non-native species, when you start seeing more insects out and about, it's a sure sign that spring can't be too far away. Now one of the things I personally associate with the approach of spring is the singing of the spring peepers. Spring peepers are small chorus frogs that can be found throughout the eastern half of the United States and Canada, near seasonal or semi-permanent wetlands, also known as vernal pools. Vernal pools are a popular place for many amphibians to lay their eggs, since they tend to lack fish or other aquatic predators that would prey on the eggs or tadpoles. I know spring is not far off when the spring peepers are singing from every pond, ditch, persistent mud puddle, and swamp. Male spring peepers begin singing shortly after the ice melts from the wetlands. Because they emerge so early in the year, they may have to endure an occasional bout of sub-freezing temperatures. In fact, frogs like spring peepers spend their winter brumating under logs or the loose bark of trees and can tolerate the freezing of its body fluids down to about 18 degrees. Males gather in groups or choruses that can number several hundred individuals. They vocalize while hidden in vegetation, and if you've ever approached an area where they're calling, you know that when they sense danger, they all become silent at the same time. This behavior, plus their camouflage and their small size, only about an inch and a half long, makes them incredibly difficult to spot. Their call has been described as sounding like plucking a comb with your fingers. These choruses can be quite loud. One study found that from about a foot and a half away, a single male peeper's call registers about 90 decibels, which is comparable to standing 25 feet away from a motorcycle. Additionally, peepers tend to intuitively find places that amplify their calls, like cracks or crevices on tall vegetation or near reflective surfaces like water. But the fact that they stop singing when you get close means you don't have to worry about a spring peeper yelling in your ear. From a short distance away, the chorus measures about 65 decibels, which is about like being in a crowded room. I find them soothing, and I love it when I can crack a window and fall asleep to their song. Here in Virginia, we're anticipating the emergence of spring peepers any day now. Females choose mates based on the speed and volume of their calls, usually preferring the faster, louder call of an older, larger male. Females can tell the difference between distinct genetic lineages and tend to prefer males of their own lineage. A segment of the male population, known as satellite males, don't make any calls, but instead position themselves close to loud males and attempt to intercept the females that are drawn in. Now I'm thinking instead of spring peepers, these satellite males should be called spring creepers. Now, if you're keeping tabs on vernal pools towards the end of winter, you may also notice spotted salamanders. The first rain after the snow thaws triggers salamanders to migrate to vernal pools to breed. And again, here in Virginia, we're anticipating that that could happen this week. Males respond more quickly to the rain and move faster than the females, so they arrive at the pool first. When the females arrive, the males will swim around vigorously and produce blobs of sperm called spermatophores, up to about 80 per male, which the females then take up to fertilize their eggs. Males may cover their competitors' spermatophores with their own, or push competing males away from the females. Each male may fertilize several females, and each female may take up spermatophores from several males. It's chaos, I'm telling you. It takes several years for spotted salamanders to reach reproductive maturity, and the time required is strongly affected by the climate where they live. In warmer parts of their range, they may be ready to breed in two to three years, but farther north, males may take five to six and females as many as seven years. Now, a couple episodes ago, I told you that groundhogs are terrible meteorologists. But even though they can't predict the onset of spring-like weather, seeing a groundhog is definitely one of nature's subtle signs that spring is near. Groundhogs come out of hibernation in mid to late February to start mating. And they're not alone. There's a good reason Valentine's Day is in the middle of February. Many mammals, not just groundhogs, are feeling romantic around this time of year. Possums and raccoons may start mating as early as January. Skunks, squirrels, and rabbits start in February or March. As warmer days approach, you're more likely to see some of these animals out and about, searching for a mate. When you see a squirrel chasing another squirrel in the springtime, it's most likely a male pursuing a female, hoping that she'll grant him the opportunity to mate. Male squirrels may fight over a lady squirrel, but they're not trying to injure just to intimidate their competition into going away. Gray squirrels and fox squirrels are not territorial, so this is the only time that they're aggressive towards each other. And of course, as spring gets closer, many birds are migrating or laying eggs as well. For many people, spring is heralded by the return of certain birds. One of the most common birds associated with spring is the American Robin. Now, I talked about robins way back in episode three, but in case you missed it or forgot, and because robins and spring go together in many people's minds, I'll do a quick review. Now, robins do seem to disappear in the winter, but depending on the region, they may or may not migrate. In winter, Robins switch from eating worms and insects to eating seeds, fruits, and berries, which they may still be able to find in their summer range. Now, some sources say that robins follow the 37 degree isotherm, the geographical line where the temperature tends to stay above 37 degrees in the winter, both southward in the fall and back northward in the spring. But in many places, They may not migrate, but instead, they form flocks grouping together in a much smaller, more localized area where they can find shelter and food, meaning that you're just less likely to see them. When we lived in Nebraska, we saw robins in the woods throughout the winter, and let me tell you, if you're not familiar, Nebraska winters are way colder than 37 degrees. When we start to see robins in the spring, it may not be that they've returned from a long migration, but that the flock has broken up and they're starting to look for good nesting sites. Now, whether or not you believe that seeing the first robin of spring is good luck, when the robins start to reappear, it really is a sign of spring. Robins are one of the first birds to start nesting and laying eggs. They may start building nests in February, even January if the weather is mild, and may start mating by March. By the time spring officially arrives, they're ready to lay their first clutch of eggs. Now, if you're from Nebraska, you know that the arrival of the sandhill cranes is a sure sign that spring is close by. And if you're not from Nebraska, well, the sandhill crane spring migration is a fascinating event. Sandhill cranes are not the kind of bird you're going to see at your backyard feeder. The great naturalist Aldo Leopold had this to say about cranes. Quote, Our ability to perceive quality in nature begins, as in art, with the pretty. It expands through successive stages of the beautiful to values as yet uncaptured by language. The quality of cranes lies, I think, in this higher gamut, as yet beyond the reach of words. Now, believe it or not, cranes are one of the oldest and most successful life forms on the planet. Cranes in general have been around for at least 34 million years, and sandhill cranes have been around largely unchanged for the last 10 million years. Sandhill cranes stand just shy of about 4.5 feet tall and have a wingspan of around 7.5 feet. They look similar to a great blue heron, except they're bigger and they have a red forehead and white cheeks. However, sandhill cranes don't hunt exclusively in the water or hunch their necks like herons. Instead, they forage for grains and invertebrates in prairies, grasslands, and marshes. On their wintering grounds in New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and northern Mexico, and during spring migration, they form flocks that can number into the tens of thousands. Sandhill cranes are famous for their loud trumpeting calls, made possible by elongated tracheas, which allow them to emit deeper frequencies. They can also control their trachea to make it shorter or longer, adjusting the pitch of their calls depending on their situation. A loud rattling call signals that a predator is nearby, and soft purring clicks mean a crane is about to take flight. And, as you can imagine, several thousand cranes are not what you would call quiet. So what do sandhill cranes have to do with spring, you ask? Well, from mid-February to mid-April, about 80% of all sandhill cranes, between 400,000 and 600,000, stop over along an 80-mile stretch of the Platte River in central Nebraska. They come and go in about three waves, each lasting four to five weeks, fattening up on waste grains in the cornfields, adding about 20% of their body weight, and, if they're unmated, trying to find a mate. Sandhill cranes mate for life, and they can live 35 years in the wild. Some find their mate as early as two years old, but by age eight, nearly all are paired up. To attract a female's attention... Males perform a courtship dance, stretching their wings, leaping and bowing. They might even throw a stick or some plants in the air. While this dancing occurs most frequently during the breeding season, sandhill cranes will dance all year long. Apparently, it's just fun. Once the female is satisfied with a performance, the pair will engage in unison calling. Mated pairs stand close together, calling in a synchronized and complex duet. The female makes two calls for every one from the male. This helps strengthen the pair bond before they continue on their journey to their arctic and subarctic nesting grounds. When they reach the nesting grounds, the cranes mate and build a nest. Cranes build a ground nest out of plant material and generally lay two eggs. The pair will take care of the nest together with the male standing guard. The spring staging of the sandhill cranes on the Platte River is considered to be one of the greatest wildlife spectacles in the world. And it's worth noting here that sandhill cranes don't nest or winter in the sandhills of Nebraska. Even so, they're named for the place where they stop for just a few weeks once a year. Okay, one last fun fact I ran across about sandhill cranes. During this stop on their migration, they sleep on sandbars in the river, which gives them some protection from predators, and sometimes they snore. Huh, who knew? And with the snoring of the sandhill cranes, we come to the end of this episode. There are some cold days yet to come before winter fully departs for another year, but warmer days are coming too, so keep your eyes peeled and you'll start to notice the signs of spring. Thank you as always for listening. If you'd like to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Tears start at just $5 a month. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want to send me a message, you can always reach me by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.